This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for this next hour here on the radio and this Saturday, and we're in the midst of Super Bowl weekend uh, for many of you uh, planning that. Uh, Also, we continue to struggle with the COVID-19 pandemic. Our Connecticut positivity is holding steady at 8%, similar to what it was uh, last week. We're seeing fewer and fewer masks. And I think we're seeing more and more upper respiratory problems that are unrelated um, to COVID. So, again, I I ask people to bear in mind that if you're not feeling well or if you're going to be in close surroundings, Take out a mask. Uh, no one's going to think less of you for it. Uh, it's it's unfortunate that with the precautions we've been taking, that uh, people now again see them as a political statement, and um, it, it's somewhat irritating. A, a perfect example is um, I perform procedures on patients, and I'll have to be in the room sometimes with the patient unmasked for an hour or more. So if a patient is not vaccinated, I ask that they get tested within 48 hours of doing the procedure, similar to what most people require for procedures or even minor surgeries. Um, But uh, I just had one instance this week where um, the patient told my assistant, oh, I guess he's one of those guys. I don't know what one of those guys is, um, but if one of those guys is Um, a person who wants to protect his staff and the people around him and to help patients, I guess I am. So um, we really need to keep in mind that we have to use these precautions um, in a medical setting, um, even at this time. And again, I do try to encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, This week, this month is Heart Health Month. And uh, I'm going to have my guest uh, this week is going to be Dr. Ofer Sagiv. Uh, Ofer is a cardiologist. He is with St. Francis Hospital. And what we're starting to see is more of a community-based practice. Uh, So he is with the Hoffman Heart Institute. And they have, they're again moving away from main campuses, which is the way to do it, right? Um, where parking is more convenient, easier access to the community. So we're going to talk to him about heart conditions. In the past week, I've gotten questions from many of you since we announced it in advance. Uh, So we're going to bring him on actually earlier than just doing the bottom of the hour so we can get a lot of information and questions answered uh, from Dr. Sagiv. Uh, February 11th, 1937, uh, Dr. Adolf Fick died. Now, Dr. Fick is not to be confused with his uncle, as I found out. Um, this uh, Dr. Fick is Adolf Gaston Eugene Fick, um, and he was an ophthalmologist who in 1888 
constructed and fitted what is believed to be the first contact lens. So contact lenses have been around for a very long time, and they have clearly evolved. Who would ever think that we'd reach the time where we have uh, disposable contact lenses? His uncle, Dr. Adolf Eugene Fick, was the person who first discovered he was a cardiologist, um, and he really came up with the measurements for cardiac output, which is something we're going to be talking uh, with Dr. Segev about, uh, because one of our questions uh, comes up uh, with that. It's also the feast today of St. Bernadette of Sobir. So, so Bernadette was the young woman who had the apparition of the Virgin at Lourdes, and uh, she was a nurse in the Franco-Prussian War. But uh, Lourdes is a place where people of deep faith go uh, with the hope of having illness cured. So um, that has uh, been a place uh, in France that attracts many, many uh, pilgrims. This week, uh, we had the State of the Union Address. And a lot has been spoken about since the State of the Union Address about Medicare. Who wants to end Medicare? Who wants to continue Medicare? And I'm not going to get into the politics of it at all. But what I will make clear is that I resent the fact that many journalists refer to Medicare as an entitlement program. It's not. And they use Medicaid and Medicare with the same terms. Medicaid is an entitlement program. It's for people who are unable to pay medical expenses, um, kind of down on their luck. It was designed so that people will get medical care even though they can't afford it. It's an entitlement program paid for out of our taxes. Medicare is an insurance program much like Social Security, and they go hand in hand. You actually pay for Medicare out of your paycheck every two weeks, the same as you pay for Social Security. So the fact that you're paying for it makes it not an entitlement program. And I think most of our listeners today who may be getting Medicare will certainly, or even younger people who look at their paycheck and their pay stub, realize that they are paying for this program. So uh, when you hear journalists either writing about it or speaking about Medicare, um, it is clearly not an entitlement program and should not be lumped the same with Medicaid, which is a state program. What's also interesting is we've had these discussions on Medicare before with Dr. Cardin, who was on from Hartford HealthCare. And he, we talked about the Care Partners, um, which is a Medicare Advantage plan. And uh, Medicare Advantage plans are kind of one-stop shopping where you get a lot of different benefits uh, in terms of uh, some dental, prescription, things such as that. Uh, as opposed to buying, uh, getting regular Medicare and then buying a supplement to cover those things. An interesting thing I found out was that in 2022, 48% of Medicare beneficiaries actually chose an Advantage plan 
over the original Medicare. Now, Advantage plans are administered by outside companies. They are not administered by the government. So inherently, they are much more efficient. Um, but again, you have a limited network in an Advantage plan and in many cases need pre-approval before you get things, uh, as opposed to people who buy Medicare and uh, Medigap insurance, which you pay for. Uh, it's often said with the alternative and the uh, Advantage programs, uh, they're really designed for people who are healthy uh, in many respects because you don't have to buy uh, the additional coverage and you get all these other things. So um, the, uh, the basics of it are if you're healthy, I think um, that really becomes uh, a big thing in terms of going into an Advantage program. And most of the people who choose Advantage plans really uh, know someone else who got it. They're talking to a neighbor, said, hey, yeah, you know, I signed up for this plan, uh, Care Partners, and it's worked out great for me. So, again, uh, I'm surprised, but, yeah, it's a growing population of people going into uh, Medicare Advantage. Uh, this week uh, we also saw just kind of a follow-up to uh, the previous story on DeMar Hamlin. Uh, we talked about... Uh, Mr. Hamlin and playing football and the fact that he had sudden cardiac arrest on the field and the importance of AEDs, automated external defibrillators, right? So, and using these AEDs and the importance of them. What I didn't realize is the numbers. You know, we hear anecdotally, we see on TV, a uh, young athlete, a teenager playing a sport, or a little leaguer playing a sport and suddenly collapses, whether it be from commotio cordis, from getting struck over the heart, or just having sudden cardiac collapse. Um, in a recent interview with uh, Dr. Doug Casa over here at UConn, uh, he really cited, I, I was surprised, the statistics are there are about 100 athletes every year who have sudden cardiac arrest. Most of these are young athletes. So just think, that's, that's one every three to four days. So again, we need to push for having these AEDs at all sporting events, not just the high-level sports, not just the UConn games. You need them at every event. They're not very expensive. They're about $1,000. Um, and I think that... Obviously, if you can save 100 lives a year in this country, that's, that's a big thing. That's a big deal. So uh, when you go to your local board of ed and you're having your league meetings or, you know, we're getting ready now uh, for little league season, right? So everybody's getting together. Coaches are going to get together. There are going to be some rule changes. Somebody should raise their hand and just say, Will there be an AED available at our games? And many times there are multiple games going on on multiple fields, so you really only need one ED, AED, but everybody needs to know where it is. So you might have three or four games going on on a huge field like we have here in Connecticut, and you're able to do it that way. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Now we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Ofer Sagiv. He is a cardiologist at St. Francis Hospital. He is with the Hoffman Heart and Vascular Institute. 
And we're going to be chatting a lot about cardiac disease in honor of Heart Health Month. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And if you have questions uh, for me, either live on the air or during the week, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com, as many of you have. And I want to welcome my guest today, Dr. Ofer Sagiv. Dr. Sagiv is uh, a cardiologist uh, specializing a lot in echocardiography and cardiac imaging. He is part of Trinity Health of New England, and as we know it as St. Francis Hospital. But specifically, uh, he works at the Hoffman Health and Vascular Institute. And they've opened a new location at the shops at Farmington Valley in Canton. So very interesting to bring cardiac, advanced cardiac technology to the community. Uh, Ofer, welcome to the show. Nice to talk to you. Tony, how are you? All right. So let's, let's start. Actually, before we get into the nitty-gritty of cardiac disease, let's talk about the new institute. What could you tell us about it and uh, what prompted this move off the main campus uh, to go uh, to really one of the more popular uh, shopping areas in our region? Well, you know, the problem is, as you know, Hartford is a, is a city. It's hard to get to some, at least my patients. Uh, I've worked uh, many years in northwest part of Connecticut, and it's really difficult for them, especially the elderly, to get to Hartford. So, uh, you know, we, let, we, we opening this, this practice here, not only brings general cardiology, but uh, the plan in the works, and actually as, as, as we are uh, uh, developing this, is to get some of the subspecialties in cardiology to, into the community. That's really going to help get the specialist into the community so patients don't have to travel so, so far away. That deters people actually from getting specialized care. This would actually help the community getting the care next to where they live. Well, actually, I find the advantage to be uh, the fact that you could park close to the front door. And if you have cardiac <laughs> disease, that makes a big difference. So that's um, right. <laughs> we're, we're getting down to the basics. But um, yeah. uh, let's get into it. Actually, you talked about some of the new technologies. Um, let's jump in with calcium score. I had one of these done. Uh, my primary care physician recommended it. Um, what is a calcium score? Can you talk a okay. little bit about that? Sure, no problem. So, so calcium score is essentially a way to see how much plaque you have in the coronary arteries. It's an imaging test. So what, you, what basically uh, your primary care doctor sends you to is to sort of get a, a CAT scan. It's a non, sort of very minimal radiation, almost like a chest x-ray, essentially, with no contrast, no nothing. Uh, you go into a CAT scan. The heart gets scanned in literally seconds. And what's nice about, about uh, uh, plaque uh, a lot of plaque, most plaque, does have calcium, and you actually can see it on the CT. So this software essentially scans your heart and gives you a score, which basically correlates with how much plaque you have in the coronary arteries. Now, it doesn't tell you if the plaque is actually obstructing bustle. It just tells you how much plaque burden you have. Okay, why is this important? It's because the higher the plaque burden, the higher risk of if you're developing a heart attack or stroke or a cardiovascular event. And based on that number, we actually do change therapy. Um, so just for example, uh, a young person, this is, this is actually what I use mostly, mostly clinically. 
you know, patient is 30, 40, 45, 50. His father died of a heart attack, you know, at the age of 45, 50. And he comes to my office and says, Dr. Sagin, what can I do to prevent the same something happening to me, similar to my, what my father did? So, you know, we look at the patient's cholesterol. Maybe he's not that have high blood pressure. Maybe he doesn't have diabetes. Maybe he never smoked. Maybe he even exercises. And he does everything right. And he actually is even uh, eating correctly. Uh, and then I'm like, well, I'm looking at him. I listen, you're doing everything correctly. Is there anything else we can do nowadays to really assess your risk? Well, that's what it is, the calcium score. So what the calcium score tells you is that, you know, it tells you whether or not you have premature coronary artery disease, and which may warrant treatment much early on than we initially thought. Uh, and not only that, you can actually get the score and you can actually compare it to people, same gender, same age, you get a percentile. So you don't want to get a 90 on this or 95 like a regular test. You want to get a zero, okay? So the lower you are in the spectrum, obviously, the better it is. Uh, and it really helps us clinically uh, decide whether or not patients actually need to be on statins very early on in their life. Well, it's very interesting because uh, getting into the practicality of it, uh, First of all, insurance doesn't pay for this test. Um, Correct. And um, it costs $100. Uh, like I said, I had it done. Bring your credit card. I mean, $100 when you talk about medical testing. Uh, I, I was amazed that it's a CT scan, and you're only paying $100 for that and the interpretation. Um, right. Why doesn't insurance pay for this? Because well, you so know many that, people are getting it. Yes, that's an interesting question. I, I, I this, this supposedly was at least the initial thing that really came out about 10, 15, even uh, probably more than 15 years ago now, um, uh, it was quote unquote experimental. So every time that you wanted to get, a, a, you know, somebody's uh, a calcium score, they always rejected it. We don't approve it as experimental. But over the last 10 to 15 years, we have so much evidence on this. Uh, then I'm actually very, very surprised. Now there, are, the thing is, again, any test you do can lead to more tests. Okay, and sure. I, I'm not sure if this is what the thoughts are of the insurance company or whatever uh, is it is it costing more. Uh, but I hope, and I sincerely hope that they realize that if we screen people for coronary arteries early on in their life, that's going to save a lot of healthcare dollars down the line. And um, I mean, I really at this point, uh, I really have no explanation, but thankfully so, it's affordable to most people. Uh, 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 you know, a hundred dollars not is not little, but I think it's a nice investment in you know, for the rest of you have to see whether or not you are at risk of having a cardiovascular event. Uh, but hopefully, you know, if anybody's listening from the insurance companies, maybe we can, we can change your minds today. Yeah, that would be pretty good, um, actually. Uh, but uh, you know, here's one of the things, and and the reason I became more aware of the score. Obviously, I discussed it with my primary care physician, but uh, I was with a group of other fellows. And everybody knows their score. I mean, they, yeah. they knew their calcium score. And, you know, one fellow said, you know, mine was, I don't know if it was five or 600. And, uh, you know, his doctor right away put him on a statin medication to right. avoid further cardiac disease. He didn't need an angiogram or anything of that nature. But um, it, it seems like it's really helpful. And people love numbers. They love to know their score, their blood sugar score, their blood pressure score. So it seems like more and more people know their calcium score. Um, so um, I was happy. Mine was 73. But by the same token, you can get that number, but it depends on where it's distributed, right? So, I mean, Correct. if it's all in yeah. one artery, that's a problem. 
So you do need right. the imaging part of it, if I'm if I'm correct. It, right. So so like like I said, mostly uh, you know this is actually reserved for people. Uh, like I said, actually want to know the number, just curious about the general health, uh, uh, but also you know to figure out whether or not they need medications early on in their lives or. or even not if they have symptoms for whatever reason, and they actually get all the tests done. Let's say they get a stress test, you know, or they get an echocardiogram, and everything looks pretty normal, or, and maybe they still have some symptoms where you're suspicious about, we do get, get that score, because if it's zero, there's very low likelihood that they have obstructive coronary artery disease with the, you know, those blockage of one of the arteries. Now, you know, as I can tell you, I've had people that have a score of 200 or 100, all the way up to 3,000 or even 5,000, okay? I mean, that's, that was really, really high. And you'll be surprised. The problem with the calcium score is that, again, you don't know if it's in the vessel itself or outside the vessel. This, this particular patient that I had not too long ago, his calcium score was really through the roof. It's almost 3,000. But we actually end up doing an angiogram because he had some minimal symptoms we weren't quite sure about. Uh, uh, and he actually had no disease that obstructed blood flow in the coronary arteries, which is wow. very, very surprising. Um, That's that's uh, the kind of thing we like to hear about, and and especially because it helps, uh, you know, prevent problems. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Ophir Segev. We've got a lot to talk about. I'm getting questions coming in now um, for him, so we're going to address those questions. And we're going to talk a lot about cardiomyopathy and further discussion of coronary artery disease. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm chatting with Dr. Ofer Sagiv. Um, He is a cardiologist at the Hoffman Hoffman Health and Vascular Institute. Uh, If you wish to reach Dr. Sagiv, the phone number 860-714-0187 if you wish to schedule an appointment with him. Uh, we had a question come in, uh, and if you have questions and we can get to them, we're happy to do it live on the air at info at alessimd.com. Uh, Margaret just uh, asked, uh, Ofer, how does a calcium score compare to a D-dimer blood test? Can you chat about okay. that a couple of minutes? Sure. Uh, so a D-dimer is actually not something that's actually related necessarily to the heart. Uh, D-dimer is usually done uh, when somebody comes to the emergency room, for example, with shortness of breath, and they want to make sure or find out whether or not there's a high likelihood that the patient actually has a clot in the lungs. So D-dimer itself is not actually uh, something that we use necessarily to um, uh, diagnose or uh, heart disease or by any means, but it does have some implications on clotting uh, in the body. All right. Thank you for that question. Um, let's uh, get right into coronary artery disease, since we've been talking about the calcium score. And we hear a lot, you know, it's Heart Health Month. Um, it's also, we see on Fridays, uh, wi- emphasizing women's heart health. Can you talk a little bit uh, about the sex differences uh, in cardiac disease? Sure. Uh, uh, Tony, just to, just to follow up on the uh, previous conversation uh, about the calcium score, I just want to sure. mention one thing. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, when the calcium score is a couple of hundred or even more, particularly into one artery, we generally do perform a stress test to make sure it's not obstructing blood flow. So I just want to put that in there. If Great. somebody does have a calcium score of a couple, a couple of hundred, it's something that we really have to 
find out, uh, even if they have no symptoms, actually. So it's um, kind of a screening test to see, yes, first of all, yeah. what do we need to do to make sure this person doesn't have a heart attack? Right. Well, that's, that's a loaded question, and we can talk about it a little bit later. But sure. to answer your question about the differences between women and men, well, actually, men, you know, uh, their presentation of a heart attack is very, it's usually a very typical presentation. They have the picardial chest fading. You know, they have that, you know, they, you know, when they uh, come to the emergency room, you know, it's a radiation to the left arm or what, or, or, and they have shortness, uh, shortness, sometimes shortness of breath with most of the chest. Women, on the other hand, have very atypical presentations for a heart attack. They're tired. They're a little short of breath. Uh, uh, so, you know, women do present differently and sometimes, you know, well, so again, to, to answer your question, is there, a di first of all, there is something called stable coin disease and a heart attack. This is a totally different, totally different things. You can develop blockages in the coronary arteries over time, not necessarily causing a heart attack. Uh, the heart attacks that we see in the emergency rooms are usually come from plaque or, or, or uh, coronary plaque that actually does not obstruct blood flow. Uh, and, and so, for instance, if let's say we find a blockage in one of the corners at 80%, that usually causes chest pain with exertion that goes away with rest. Uh, when people come into the emergency room uh, and have a heart attack, usually when we actually end up doing an angiogram and looking at the arteries themselves, there's a lot of uh, a thrombus in the, in the artery. And when we actually, you know, suck the thrombus out, sometimes, most some of the time, there's actually absolutely no narrowing in the artery or very minimal narrowing in the artery. That's the difference really between a heart attack and what's called stable coronary disease or plaque formation over, over years. Okay, that's uh, very important. Uh, that's very important uh, distinction. Yes. Yeah, and what we know is that, is that this is why it's important, let's say, to do a calcium score because if we know you have plaque in the coronary arteries, uh, we, most of us, most cardiologists do prescribe a statin, not necessarily to reduce the cholesterol, but reduce that dreadful event of a heart attack. Uh, statins, we know, not only decrease the cholesterol, but also decrease the inflammation of the blood vessels, and that's what we think is le leads to heart attacks and strokes. Well, let's talk about ways we avoid it. We talked about some of the diagnostic ways, and we're always hearing about diet, exercise, rest, things such as that. Uh, let's just take the diet, for example. There are so many different diets out there um, that we should watch. What do you recommend uh, to patients who may be at risk? Say you have a family history, uh, your lipids may be a little bit up. Um, what do you recommend for that type of patient? So I, 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 most of my patients, what I recommend is the Mediterranean diet. Okay, So it's pretty much rich in fruits and, rich in fruits and vegetables, fish, good fats like nuts and, and, um, and uh, uh, legumes like uh, beans, all these, th all these are good fats and, and uh, sort of, you know, the olive oils, all, all sorts reduce sort of, we think necessarily reduce sort of the inflammation in the blood vessels. But generally speaking, they're also relatively lean. And as you know, we're in a country where there's, you know, sort of an obesity epidemic. And uh, even with minimal exercise and, you know, less calorie intake, you know, overall, if the balance is there, uh, uh, that by itself can reduce your weight improve your blood pressure, if you improve your cholesterol profile, and eventually reduce the chance of having that dreadful event of a heart attack. Well, you mentioned the word inflammation, uh, which is what yes. we hear about a lot. And we also hear about the use of aspirin, whether it be a baby aspirin, a full aspirin. Uh, when do you prescribe or suggest that people begin taking an aspirin 
uh, for uh, heart disease? Okay, so again, a very again, a very loaded question. So uh, we used to think I'm good at those. The, oh, yes, I, I can see okay. that, and that, right. that changes. <laughs> that changes. It seems to change every couple of years, but essentially, you know, uh, let's take uh, the last year maybe off the table for a second. Uh, as, as far as I can remember, uh, we generally recommend aspirin therapy for prevention of a heart attack and stroke for people who increase risk. If they have, let's say, diabetes, if they have hypertension, if they smoke, if they're, you know, over the age, let's say, of 45 for a man or 55 for a woman, that's what we used to think, that aspirin does have the benefit. Over the past year, though, maybe a year and a half, there came a large study about aspirin. And we actually found out that, uh, particularly as you get older, aspirin, the benefit of aspirin actually puts you in, the, it puts you in increase, let's say, uh, bleeding rather than prevent a heart attack. So nowadays, uh, and this is actually an important distinction, as far as patients who don't have any documented stroke or heart attack, we don't recommend aspirin at this time unless, and this is my practice, and that can be varied between cardiology and cardiologists, unless your calcium score, let's say, is above a certain level. I use 100. I mean, I did some limited studies to show that there's some benefit of aspirin if your calcium score is over, over 100. Uh, 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 but generally speaking, if I don't have that piece of information, I don't prescribe nowadays, at least don't start aspirin uh, and people just blanket, sort of uh, blanket start of an aspirin. Now, if they've been on aspirin already, let's say for years, and they can tolerate it, and they want to continue it, I don't stop them from, from taking it, okay? But to start aspirin nowadays, we're a little bit more careful. Now, that's, that's a, there's a big distinction because some people kind of came to me who, let's say, have a heart attack or had a stent. Oh, yeah, I heard of the news. Uh, I don't sure. take aspirin anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, 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 no. First of all, obviously, you want to talk to your doctor before you stop any medications. And not only that, those studies that you heard the news about aspirin, not taking aspirin, it doesn't really do anything, doesn't apply to people who already have the disease. And it's not just a heart attack or stroke. It's also peripheral vascular disease. Uh, that's, you know, blockages in the arteries of, uh, of the legs or having carotid artery disease. You know, those people are just as high of a risk of developing a heart, a heart attack uh, 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 even if you don't have documented coronary artery disease. I want to move on. I have another question here, and this concerns cardiomyopathy. So mm-hmm. uh, someone, a listener got in touch with me. They developed a viral cardiomyopathy post-COVID and actually were quite sick in the hospital with a declining ejection fraction. Now, eventually with medication, uh, they recovered. Now, this was a healthy a uh, young person who kept in shape, exercised regularly, and developed this cardiomyopathy. And mm-hmm. uh, so can you talk a little bit about cardiomyopathy in general, um, the post-viral cardiomyopathy? And, and I guess my question of how, how do you improve your ejection fraction? Are there things that you can do to improve cardiac output? Okay. A lot well, of questions let, in there. yes. Okay. Let's let's start with the definition of a cardiomyopathy, right? So, cardiomyopathy is basically uh, an abnormal heart function. Okay. Uh, for, and now there's two main reasons why you can have abnormal heart function, and we usually make a distinction uh, in the initial diagnosis point. Uh, if somebody comes to my practice and we do an ultrasound of the heart, which is how we diagnose a cardiomyopathy, we look at the heart function with ultrasound. And we see an abnormal heart function, which is generally defined as 
an ejection fraction, another seven, less than, let's say, 50%. So an ejection fraction is basically with every beat of the heart, about 50% of the blood goes out of the heart. 50% remains of the heart. If it's less than that, it's sort of, it's, it's, uh, uh, we call it a cardiomyopathy. Now, there's two main, re- two categories of a, of a cardiomyopathy. What do, you, what do you consider normal for an ejection fraction? Ejection fraction, usually we say between 55 and 65%. Okay. okay? Uh, uh, anything below, if it's like 50 to 55%, we consider it a no, low normal. Anything less than 50 is considered abnormal. Okay. okay? Uh, and, and that's based on prognosis data, like, you know, how long patients, if they have less than 50%, usually they have a higher risk of mortality. That's why we use those numbers. Um, so, again, just to, to explain what the, uh, we, the initial, the initial uh, in the initial point of diagnosis, we try to figure out, is this related to coronary artery disease or not? Okay. So, you know, if somebody has a normal, abnormal ejection fraction, generally speaking, we either do a uh, uh, a coronary angiogram, or we do a stress test to find out if they have coronary disease. If they don't, then there is a whole other uh, uh, sort of uh, differential diagnosis or possibilities that we go through to figure out why the patient has an abnormal heart function, one of which is what happened to your patient, viral, okay? Uh, and, 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 you know, un- unfortunately, uh, um, you know, when we discover blockages, it's actually fairly easy to fix for the most part. If there is a scar in the heart or, or a patient already a heart attack, as soon as you put on medications and let's you open the blockages, there is a good chance that there's a significant improvement in the heart function. On the other hand, when let's say we found that there's no blockages and the heart, let's say, is very dilated uh, for whatever reason, uh, uh, then the only thing we can do is medications. And we have plenty of medications nowadays to, to treat people with a cardiomyopathy, and a lot of them live a lot longer than they used to many, many years ago, okay? Those include anywhere from what's called beta blockers, metoprolol, uh, or carvedilol, uh, ACE inhibitors, which are pretty much all blood pressure medications, and still of other ones that came recently on, on the market over the last five years. You know, patients' prognosis with cardiomyopathy has significantly improved the last, last 10 years, particularly with all the slow medications we have, and I would say that more than half of the patients, if they're on proper treatment, do significantly improve the injection fraction or the heart function over time with these medications, even if they don't have blockages. At what point does someone need a heart transplant? Well, uh, that's, again, that's, that's a little, so, so people with a cardiomyopathy, okay, uh, have various, the, the body has a way of, of sort of uh, coping with it, okay? Some people have an ejection fraction of 5 or 10%, and it sometimes feel literal no symptoms. Some people have a heart function, let's say, of 30 35%, and it's severely symptomatic, okay? Uh, so a lot of it had to do, have to do with symptoms and their response to medications and their response to other advanced treatments for cardiomyopathy. Sometimes they something called LVADs, when, you know, people get implanted sort of a, a cardiac assist device to help them, so not necessarily not necessarily uh, a heart transplant per se, uh, but the heart transplant is usually reserved for people who really are, are relatively younger, okay? Uh, relatively, have no other conditions other than the heart itself being abnormal because that's, you know, and, uh, and obviously, there's a, uh, the, obviously the availability of the organs is, is a key point here, but, uh, you know, that's, you know, I'm actually not a heart failure uh, uh, transplant person, but, 
we usually refer those once we put people on medications and they still feel really really uh, bad then we uh, move them on to the next specialist particularly for heart failure to see if they can have a heart transplant or ventricular assist device to help their symptoms Let's move on a little bit because we're on the topic of ejection fraction. That's typically you calculate that based on an echocardiogram. Am I correct? Correct. Okay. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what is an echocardiogram? And I know this is one of your areas of specialty in imaging. Right. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what someone should expect if they have an echocardiogram? Right. So echocardiogram is actually, you know, it's it's essentially an ultrasound of the heart. Uh, uh, just like, you know, just like babies get, you know, in, in the womb. Uh, it's a very simple, non-invasive examination of the heart where we take pictures in multiple views uh, to look at several things. One, as you mentioned, is the heart function. Uh, uh, and uh, also looking at, at the cardiac valve. Many, there's many, many conditions of the heart, which involve the cardiac valves, an ultrasound or echocardiogram is excellent in diagnosing either a leaky valve or a narrowed valve. Uh, uh, and also it's helpful in looking in, in the pressures of the heart because some people come to us and they get many, 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 I get many, many patients that come to me, not just necessarily for chest discomfort, which is a, could be a sign of coronary disease, but also with shortness of breath. And so uh, echocardiography is very helpful in assessing the pressures inside the heart, either the left and right of the heart, to see whether or not just increased pressures in the heart could lead to the patient's symptoms. So it's a comprehensive examination, not only of the heart itself, also of the aorta, which is the major vessel that comes out of the heart. Uh, sometimes people with high blood pressure can develop an aortic aneurysm. That's something that needs to be followed over time. Uh, but it's, it's sort of a it's a very, comp- again, has become very comprehensive exam of the heart of the last. There's many new technologies looking at different types of uh, parameters that uh, have been studied over the last, but it's, it's pretty much, if you get an echo and, and it's sort of, it's fairly normal, you can rest assured that you don't have any significant structural heart problem. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have coronary artery disease, uh, but it certainly makes it more likely, particularly for you on the, on the younger side. Uh, boy, you know, I got to tell you, Ofer, uh, I've got a whole list of things here we're not getting yeah. to. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, I guess I have to ask you this in, in wrapping things up. It, uh, there are two questions. One is, um, what's the next big technology we should know about uh, in, in respect to cardiac disease and cardiac evaluations? And that's an interesting. Well, so things that are getting developed all all the time. So one of the things that uh, we actually didn't talk about uh, today is uh, like valve uh, uh, valve replacement through non non surgical ways of actually replacing your replacing valves. I know we were going to talk a little bit about some some other valvular conditions, but uh, you know over the last you know ten years we've been you know replacing valves through a catheter based approach. Uh, 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 particularly the aortic valve. And, and I, I see in the future that we'll be able to do a lot more things, not with cardiac surgery, but through a non-invasive, uh, minimally invasive approach uh, in replacing other valves in the heart through the same technology. That's what I see really what the future is, is that eventually we're going to see less and less and less uh, 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 cardiac conditions treated with surgery and more, more with uh, minimally invasive procedures. 
Ofer, it's been great having you on, and uh, clearly we will have you back soon because um, <laughs> there's a whole list of questions and more coming in uh, on this topic. I want to thank you. Thank you for everything you do for our community. Uh, thank sure. you for setting up this new uh, Hoffman Heart and Vascular Institute over there at Canton Crossing, those shops at Farmington Valley. Once again, to reach uh, Dr. Sagiv, 860-714-0187 to set up an appointment and um, to gain uh, access to his expertise. Ofer, thank you for your time today. Yeah, yeah, pleasure. Pleasure, Tony. All right. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back to wrap things up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. It was great having Dr. Segev. As I said, I, I didn't get to all the questions um, that we had. We had questions about heart murmurs, um, different cardiac anomalies that came up, and uh, I did want to talk about valves, so we're going to get him back on. So if you do have more questions, I'll be happy to get them over to him directly. You can reach me at info at alessimd.com. And uh, next week uh, we're going to be chatting about more and more some – Somebody made me aware of a new treatment for multiple myeloma, um, a more common, we're seeing more and more types of this type of cancer, and there are some new treatments out there. So I'm going to try and get somebody on to talk a little bit about that. And as always, you can get me questions. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler, as always, is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Um, and we'll always be taking your questions. Uh, if you missed any part of today or listening to Dr. Sagiv's interview, you can get that on the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can easily download that at odyssey.com, uh, Apple Podcasts, or really wherever you get your podcast. just um, search for Healthy Rounds podcast. Next up on WTIC is going to be Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Uh, I ask you to all keep in mind um, to stay healthy and keep in mind that this is a an important month in heart, in heart uh, make, making sure that we are more aware of healthy hearts and keeping our hearts as healthy as possible through diet and exercise. With that, I wish you all a good week, and we'll chat again next week here on Healthy Rounds. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.